Ireland group is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. He's got it. 984, a world record for Donovan Bailey and a gold medal. A perfect score. 10.0 for Dante Cavanese. A perfect score. The first time I've never seen it. Welcome back to Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast, as we come to you right now to talk about the Olympics. When the Olympics aren't actually on, no, we are here to continue on a series of interviews that we are bringing you from both Australian and Canadian athletes, perhaps other countries, we don't know. We we might delve into the bowels of the Ethiopian Olympians to bring you some surprise interviews across the way. But uh, today you are tuning in to hear an Olympic gold medalist from Rio 2016, Kim Brennan who, of course, won gold in the single skulls at Rio 2016, uh, one of our eight gold medalists from the Games, Australia's eight gold medalists. I shouldn't just say our, we have a Canadian angle to this program as well. So one of Australia's gold medalists. Now, Kim has had a pretty amazing career, uh, started off as a runner uh, in athletics and was actually a national junior champion in the 400 metre hurdles, won a silver medal in the 400 metre hurdles at the World Youth Championships in 2001 and was a second ranked hurdler behind the one, the only Yana Pittman uh, leading up into uh, the early 2000s. But an injury in 2005 cost her her shot at athletics, glory at the Olympics, so she switched focus to rowing, a sport that she would go on to amazing success in, won a couple of medals in London in 2012, competed in Beijing but didn't medal, won a silver and a bronze in London after becoming one of the very few rowers to compete in multiple events at those games, and 2016 went on to win gold in the single skulls. Now, we were actually uh, recording when that happened. We uh, were recording our daily recap at the exact moment that Kim crossed the line to win the goal. This was the only opportunity, I believe, throughout the entire games that we had to, quote, commentate on an Australian gold medal. Uh, so I, I just want to play this clip for you really quickly. If you missed that episode last year, this is this is us uh, recording at the time that Kim won that gold medal. This is where she does the same bolt, surely, and kind of... Over. She's gone. Winner. Gold. Oh, that lane one row was getting closer. Or was that just the angle of the camera? I don't like these angles. That was a lot closer than I thought <laughs> it would be. Behind oh, shit. Hang on, she won already? <laughs> oh, yeah. But it was a lot clo- U.S. was a lot closer than I thought oh, they were. Well, fuck, she's only winning right now on mine. Go, Australia. Go, you good thing. Gold, gold, gold. Yes. Six gold. <laughs> Suck it, France. This is why you're the middle tally. Oh, this is a- I'm just happy that she didn't try to give the death stare to the Americans and the Chinese right before she crossed the finish line and capsized. Kim Brennan has just shot Australia back ahead of the French and the Germans and the Koreans 
and we're just now behind the Japanese. But it, they're fine. I like the Japanese. They're awesome. So, yay, we're in fifth again. Well, clearly, you can see why we aren't Olympic commentators. But there we go. That was her, her gold medal winning performance, from our perspective at least. And Kim, I should also mention, has a bit of a connection to Hobart and Tasmania as uh, she is married to Scott Brennan, Tasmanian rower, won gold in Beijing in the men's double skulls with David Crochet and uh, also got married here in Tasmania as well. So, uh, as you'll hear in this interview, a bit of a connection to us down here in Hobart and Tasmania. But enough of that. You don't want to hear me. You want to hear from Kim. So, uh, without further ado, let's get to it and let's speak to Olympic gold medalist Kim Brennan. Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I have to say, is it something that you're getting used to at the moment, being introduced as an Olympic gold medalist? Is it still something that you just can't get sick of hearing when people say that? Oh, it still feels a little bit removed. It's like, oh, gee, they must be talking about someone else. Um, <laughs> but it is it is quite nice, I will say. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been six months now, obviously, since Rio and since the medal. I mean, I can imagine that things really haven't, I guess, calmed down. You, you've come back home. You've, you've won countless awards. You've been named a member of the Order of Australia. You're doing speaking gigs. I mean, have you had a chance to even just rest and even just soak in the fact that you've won an Olympic gold medal? Um, I think reality hit pretty hard when I started full-time work and I realized you know the difference between between a normal nine-to-five job um, and elite sport and I think it was then that I began to appreciate a lot more um, you know the life that I'd been fortunate to lead and what I had achieved um, and I think you know having that other challenge um, also means that you you move on a lot and you don't you don't think about it too much, but when it pops up, it's just like, oh, you know, that's nice. It's nice. It's it's, it's something that I guess, you know, yeah. it's, it's you can always tell the grandkids about it one day. Oh, you know, I won a gold medal at the Olympics. Just something small, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's very satisfying. Now, was it always a goal of yours growing up to become an athlete? I mean, obviously, you grew up in a, in a very sporting household, your dad playing in the VFL. I mean, was this kind of something that spurred you into wanting to become an athlete? Were there other methods that involved you going forward into a sporting career? Yeah, look, I was really lucky that we had a very active childhood. Uh, my brother played a lot of sports and he always included me. So, you know, whatever he did, I wanted to do. Um, so that gave me a good basis. Um, I think it was something that really um, just just twigged when I was watching the Barcelona Olympics opening ceremony. Now, I would have been about seven um, and there was just something magical about it that from that moment, I just had this real drive that I wanted to do that. Um, you know, obviously at that age, I had no idea what that actually meant or what a future in sport would look like, but it was something that just absolutely fascinated me. And I think, you know, sometimes having that really deep passion helps you through the injuries. It helps you through the sessions that you're really struggling. It, it just helps find that, um, little extra bit of resilience to keep going, um, when things are tough. And so I think it was probably that moment of starting to have that dream that, set me on the course that I ended up on. So from that point on, um, with that desire and that dream that you're mentioning, what's the the decision process then involved into choosing a sport, I guess? You obviously went into a- athletics, first of all, to try and, I guess, pursue that dream. Was was that the, the sport you thought you would be best adapted to? Did you kind of dabble in some other Olympic sports at the time? 
Uh, at school, I played a lot of different sports, but I was best at um, track and field. Um, so, you know, 400 hurdles was, was kind of my niche, um, and I'd had the most success in that. And I think often, you know, when we're young, we choose sports depending on, you know, maybe what our friends do and what's popular at the school that, that we go to and, and also what we're good at. Um, and I think because I was, I was best at that, that was, um, you know, it was my passion. Um, and I did, I did. I, I thought that that would be the sport that would take me to the Olympics. Um, you know, looking back now, I think it's very lucky that I did find a different sport. I think, um, you know, my my height and the way I'm built and my physiology um, is probably better suited to a number of other sports. Um, but often we don't, um, you know, we don't look at different opportunities until we're forced to. And I guess that's what happened to me when I got I got injured. I was told that I wouldn't be able to run at the top level again and um, I was doing some rehab on a rowing ergo and it was then that, you know, started thinking about, well, can I do something else? And I, I could also imagine the, the fact then that you don't have to run and every couple of metres jump over a piece of wood also would be a, a thing that perhaps you don't miss. I mean, I've, I've interviewed hurdlers in the past before and I'm always fascinated to think that what, you know, running's hard enough as it is with training, let alone adding that extra hurdle in it. I mean, that, I guess, in itself uh, would have been a slight relief that you didn't have to work that part of your training anymore. I mean, they're very different sports. I think, um, you know, the 400 hurdles is, it's it's a sprint. Um, the way you train is, um, you know, it's a huge amount of impact on your body, meaning that you're always walking an incredibly fine line between doing enough training and getting injured. Um, a lot more explosive, a lot more lactic acid. Rowing is, um, you know, it's it's a very aerobic sport, but it's also a power-based sport. I had to put on a lot of weight to become a good rower, um, put on a lot of muscle and really improve my endurance capacity. So I wouldn't have said that, you know, if you were doing doing a talent ID test on me um, at the end of my athletics career that I would have ticked many of the rowing boxes. Um, But I think with most sports and, and, you know, most things that we, we do in life, you have transferable skills. I'd learnt as a track and field athlete how to um, get the most out of myself in a training session, how to take feedback, how to make change, um, and how to really, you know, set a goal and work towards it. Hmm. And all those things meant that when I started rowing, um, it didn't matter that I wasn't good to start with. Um, all these things. I could learn um, as long as I kept trying to get better with every session. And I guess, I mean, you did have obviously success in your athletics career before you did switch sports. I mean, uh, silver at the 2001 World Championships, uh, junior champion, uh, you raced against Yana Pittman, of course, basically at her peak. Do, do you feel, had you not got injured, uh, you know, that you would have made, how do you think you would have gone, I guess, moving forward with athletics? Do you think you would have had the success perhaps that you have had in rowing in athletics? You know, I, I always wonder. Um, I think I would have had to step up a distance. I think I would have had to run 800s rather than 400 hurdles just because probably didn't have quite enough fast twitch to match it on the big stage. But I think one of the things that I've really seen, um, you know, having spent you know 11 years competing on the elite stage in rowing now is just how good the people who are the best in the world are. Um, and, you know, rowing just suits me so well. Um, and 
I wonder whether I would have had the same experiences in track and field. I think I really enjoyed and thrived in the the team atmosphere of rowing, um, which is ironic because I ended up um, winning a gold medal in a single (laughs) skull. But very much the thing that I loved most about the sport was how... Um, strong that teamwork is and how well people support each other and how much more you can achieve when you're, when you're sharing a journey. Um, and I think a lot of the things that I learned that made me into a great athlete, um, I, I learned because of rowing and because of the people in rowing. Um, so it's pretty hard to say. <laughs> I think I definitely chose the right sport. So. Well, it was, it's a fascinating uh, thing that happened to you, really. I mean, you get injured, I'm sure, at that point when you're told that you're really not going to be able to compete at an elite level like you said before. You know, the, 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 the dream of going to the Olympics, things along those lines, you know, the thought process to eventually get led into another sport with the success that you've had. It's not often that an athlete can say, I'm glad I got injured to basically say I can't do this anymore because it led you obviously into your career that what you've got now. I actually think it was a great gift because often when um, people think, oh, gee, I might be better at another sport, they can still do their original sport and that makes it really hard because the reality is that when you try something new, you're going to suck at it. When you first start, if you've never rowed before and you jump in a boat, those things are really tippy. It's really hard to do. Um, and so something will take time. And because I didn't have another option, so I couldn't go back to, to running and I knew that, it meant that you could really immerse yourself in something new. I think often we see people try and talent transfer and they'll try for a little bit and then they'll go back to their original sport because it seems like the change is overwhelming and it it will never happen. Um, So in so many ways, I was really lucky that I had that finality. Um, And it is a great thing to look back on because I was absolutely distraught at the time. It was, in my head, that injury was the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. It was like my whole world came crumbling down. And I know that sounds ridiculous talking about it now, but as I experienced it then as a 19-year-old, it was... Um, you know, all my worst nightmares coming to fruition. Um, And I think, you know, a few things that I learnt from that, but that often um, adversity can feel awful at the time, but um, so often we learn so much from it and we get new opportunities because of that adversity. So as long as we can sit with it and be okay with it, it can actually be a really good thing. And and ultimately, of course, it would turn out to be a a good thing, of course, looking back now. I mean, you're mentioning sort of the training and everything that you went through. I mean, you you kind of had success fairly quickly, I guess you could say. I mean, within a year or so of joining the sport, you you won a bronze medal at the World Championships as part of the women's eight, and then obviously ultimately went on to to Beijing. In that period, though, as you were mentioning about those thoughts when you're thinking to yourself, well, is this for me? I mean, did you have those moments where it was just really pushing through it and trying to keep with it so that you could ultimately get to that point where you are competing at the elite level? Yeah, I think initially um, it was fantastic because I was improving so fast. I mean, if you start from a base of, of not knowing how to row, every time you go out and do a session, you get better, and that is hugely rewarding. Um, so my first year in the sport was a real whirlwind. I got selected on the Australian team within six months of starting rowing, and it was just, you know, a huge step up in the amount of training and the and the volume and, um, you know, racing in a world championship final. Um, 
I think the real challenge came after that. Um, that learning curve had been so steep. And then all of a sudden, it starts to level out. And pretty much for four or five years after that, I didn't see much improvement at all. I'd, um, I'd got a certain way in the sport by, you know, being really diligent and working really hard and really applying myself and, you know, racing hard and, and in a lot of ways kind of just hurting myself, like, you know, absolutely at upper limits of capacity all the time. And it probably took me a little while to really embrace the fact that rowing is an art um, and it's not all about harder, faster, more. It's also about um, being at one with the boat and, and being a real master of your craft. Um, and so I think the challenge was really in those those interim years of, you know, we went away to the Beijing Olympics and came last. That's incredibly challenging, um, you know, at a time when you think that you've done absolutely everything possible to succeed and you don't get the results that you would like. Um, you sort of wonder, well, is this my capacity? Is this all I'm capable of? Um, so I think enduring through that part of my career was probably the hardest. And I guess it's a it's a unique sport too in that you've got so many options. Uh, like as I mentioned, you were as part of the women's eight, and then ultimately you go on to win a gold in the single skull. I mean, you've got options in pairs and 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 fours and quads and all these sort of things. Is there also that element where through that period you were talking about, you're trying to find what suits you best. You're trying to find that category of rowing that is where you can find that success. You're ultimately striving to achieve uh yeah I, I think you're right i think um you know a lot of the time those decisions are made for you um the the rowing program will prioritize certain boat classes and and really pursue them when i came into the program that was for eights um but then as time went on they actually decided that they were going to prioritize the sculling program which was another huge challenge for me because i'd essentially learned to row sweep which is with one all um and then all of a sudden in in 2010 they said no we're not sending sweepers away you're going to need to scull um and and that was another huge challenge because i was the top ranked um sweeper in the country but I was, you know, struggling to make finals in sculling and and having to really swallow your pride and be bad at something <laughs> is quite hard. Um, but, you know, I was really lucky to have, have some great teammates over the years um, to work with. I think I had a, you know, particularly fantastic experience in the double skull in 2012 with Brooke Prattley. Um, and one of the reasons for ending up in the single after after London 2012 was that Brooke was retiring and I just couldn't imagine um, being able to replace her. <laughs> you know, it was just such a, a perfect combination that um, it. I think I would I would struggle to, you know, build that same relationship with someone new. Um, so it's, a lot of it's about, you know, the people around you and, and sort of where you are in your career as well. Um, there's a huge energy and excitement in an eight. Um, it's great fun. It's, you know, training is, you know, full of people, um, you know, supporting each other. The racing is, um, you know, incredibly fun when you have a great race. Um, but then the, 
you know, the self-responsibility and um, the freedom of a, a single skull is something that probably suited me a bit better later in my career. Well, when you mentioned Beijing, obviously, the disappointment where you, you finished last in your race. But, I mean, putting that aside, the fact that you ultimately made an Olympics going back to watching Barcelona when you were seven years old, I mean, could you at least soak that in when you first went to your very first Olympics to say, hey, here we go, I've achieved it, I'm an Olympian? You know, that's the funny thing because come 2008, I fully expected to make the Olympic team because, you know, I'd done the training, I was, you know, we were the top pair in the country. It was it was one of those things that at the time, I didn't stop to appreciate it. It was just because of um, my performances, it was what happened next. And it's only looking back... Um, that I really came to appreciate what that actually meant. Um, you know, I, I really wish I had have taken time to smell the roses then. I just remember being, um, you know, I, I probably took it for granted and then when we didn't have a good performance, I was, you know, I was absolutely distraught. Um, I think looking back though, there were so many positives that came out of those games and one of them is the incredibly special thing of being an Australian Olympian, but also getting to see um, people who did perform well. Um, the men's double skull of, of Scott Brennan, my now husband, yes, and yes. <laughs> his, his partner, David Crochet, um, was hugely inspirational because they'd had a... Um, They'd had a disappointing performance four years earlier and I got to watch their journey of how they went from um, from a disappointing performance to a gold medal and see what it actually takes to get there. Um, and that gives you so much hope that you can turn things around. And, I mean, London, you did turn it around slightly. I mean, you came home with two medals. But, I mean, I guess then with that in the back of the mind, was it... Was it satisfaction that you've walked away with medals or, again, was there that disappointment that you ultimately didn't get the colour of medal that you probably were striving to achieve? London was actually um, a hugely positive experience. There was no tinge of disappointment at all in the London result. Um, Brooke and I in the double skull, we won silver, but we were beaten by probably the best women's double skull to have ever taken the water. Um, and we had the best possible race we could have imagined. Um, the single skull, I was really new to that event. Um, and again, had the best regatta I could have been capable of at that time. Um, and so it is quite funny when you come back home and you get questions like, oh, gee, you know, you must be, you must be disappointed with the silver. Um, I bet you want gold. And and you're sort of standing there thinking, but that was the best I could do. I'm competing against other people in this world who train just as hard, who want the same things that I do. And being able to respect the fact that sometimes you can be the best you can be and that won't be the best in the world. And so as much as I was striving for the gold medal, my ultimate aim was to be the best single scholar I could be come the final of Rio 2016. Um, I can't control how fast my competitors are going to go. All I can control is how fast I'm going to go. And so you have to be able to accept that your best is good enough um, and be okay with that. And ultimately, of course, after London, I mean, the success you had in between London and Rio, you know, multiple world championship gold and just medals in between, undefeated in World Cups heading into Rio. Uh, The confidence level heading into those games, as you were saying, kind of trying to get the best you can be, 
at that point, w- were you feeling this is I'm at the peak of my my rowing ability? This is this is everything I've worked for. And, and do you go in with that confidence, feeling like this is my time? I am going to do this. Yeah, I actually, um, you know, I reflect on um, that sort of two minutes before the race starts and. Um, you know, leading into the games, I would often, you know, sit at the start line of a, a race at, you know, a Penrith regatta or a Canberra regatta and I'd try to work myself into this nervous tears because, like you, Kim, you're going to be so nervous at the Olympics because this means so much to you. Um, so you've got to practice being nervous and still being able to race well. And then the whole irony of that was when I actually got to that Olympic final, I was incredibly calm because I just had this knowledge that I had done everything possible to perform in this race there wasn't anything that I'd look back on and say gee I would have done that differently or I wish I had have done um, you know this extra piece or this extra session or I had have done that better there was not a single thing in my preparation that that I would have changed um, and so I just had this calmness on the start line of finally I'm going to get the chance to race the race that I've been working towards for the past 11 years and it was quite a you know, just a tranquil moment that I'm not sure that I will ever really experience again because I can't imagine anything in my life ever being as prepared for as I was for that race. And how many times since have you relived it? I mean, how many times have you watched it, I guess, Kim? Is it something that you on a Saturday night you're just home, oh, cool, let's just watch me win gold medal again? <laughs> watch the rowing. <laughs> um, no, occasionally, um, occasionally if I'm doing a talk, um, people will play a bit of a snippet of the of the race um and usually the bit of crossing the line and I still actually get quite emotional about it because I think I'd done such a good job leading into the games of really just focusing on my race and what I had to do to do as well as possible and I really tried to not think about the fact that um, you know, the, the whole world was watching and um, there was a lot riding on it. And I think afterwards, when I realised how much was riding on that performance, um, you know, in terms of our rowing team and the future of our sport and, you know, inspiring young people and, and you know, the things that flow on from it, um, it has a much bigger magnitude than I'd allowed myself to um, process at the time Um, and I just I can kind of still feel that relief (laughs) of actually doing it yeah (laughs) of um, of racing that race that I trained myself to do because I would have found that so hard um, to have been so prepared and so ready and then to not get it right. And, of course, you're mentioning uh, ultimately uh, your then, at the time, who would become your future husband, uh, Scott Brennan, of course. I mean, that, the last time Australia had won a gold medal in rowing was back in Beijing with Scott in, in that event. And you've come through there to get the gold for, for Australia as well. I mean, Scott wasn't there, I believe, at the event. Are you thinking to yourself, wow, what, I just want to get on the phone, I want to talk to him, like, hey, honey, look, you know, we're gold medalists together now, let's celebrate. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, there are a couple of people that I really wanted to see after the race. I, You know, I wanted to, to speak to Scott and I wanted to see um, my coach, Lyle McCarthy. Um, you know, Lyle and I, he he was my first coach once I was selected on the Australian team up in Canberra. 
Um, so he looked after me for 10 of the 11 years that I raced on the Australian team. Um, you know, that's a, a long time to be working with one coach and we really, um, you know, came through this journey together and um, he's a great friend of, of Scott and I. He's also Coach Scott. Um, and so there are some very special people who play a huge role um, in any performance um, who you really want to share it with. And, um, you know, it was actually... It was it was really beautiful, um, you know, finally getting home and, and seeing Scott and, um, you know, just being able to sit on the couch and chat about what happened. Are you, are you, are you both wearing your medals, just going like, hey, check this out? <laughs> <laughs> no, the funny thing is, I don't think Scott even knows where he is. He's oh, wow. very, <laughs> very modest about his achievements. He, you know, he's a doctor now and he... Um, he doesn't like anyone to know. Wow. He, um, <laughs> he's he's incredibly, um, incredibly modest, and um, I think sometimes I, I have to remind him a little bit that <laughs> you know you're a, it was a phenomenal achievement and huge inspiration to me, and and you know it wasn't just the race, but everything he taught me about how to how to think and how to really push my limits, how to communicate, um, how to be the best athlete I could be. He's incredibly understated. <laughs> so wow. there's definitely no medals flashing around the house. Wow. So, so did you just wear yours in for ages just for the fact that you could at least soak up the moment yourself? <laughs> no, it's actually, um, it's, it stays in the sock drawer and then it comes out for, it's really fun to take around to, you know, talks and schools and, um, and just see the excitement that it brings people. That's one of the things that I love about the medal. But, um, the actual medal itself, I've got the memories and I couldn't ask for anything more. I've got the, the friendships. I've got the knowledge that, you know, I set myself a difficult task and, and was able to do it. Um, so I don't, I don't need a thing. Um, to to represent that, um, it will always be something that that is inside me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I know personally, Kim. Though, if I was an Olympic medalist, if I was an Olympian, I'd probably just never take my Olympic clothes off. But if I was a medalist, I mean, it would just it would <laughs> never come off. I would wear it all the time. Hey, everyone, look, it's bronze, but I don't care. I want a medal. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's why I'm not an Olympian. You should do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, look, I'm, I'm still, I'm still at the age. I'm going to eventually try out for the curling team. I guess maybe that could be something. That's probably the only athletic ability yeah, totally. I can have. It's a great sport. Yeah, well, you know, it's an Olympic sport, so I can't complain. It um, is exactly. I mean, obviously, the, the honour then too, carrying the flag out to the closing ceremony as well. I mean, that's that's something that just uh, you know bestowed on on very few Australians over the years. Obviously, only one person gets to do it per Olympics. So, I mean, that in itself must have been just the perfect icing on the cake for your Olympics? Oh, it was really beautiful. Um, I I chaired the um, Australian Olympic Committee Athletes Commission for the four years leading into to Rio and we'd done a lot of um, work on really building a strong team culture and just seeing the Australians come out and, you know, mingling between sports and being so proud of what it meant to be an Australian Olympian um, was really incredibly special and something that I feel so honoured to have been able to to do um, and I think it was, was one of those moments that you know I'm so proud of what our team achieved and I feel sometimes quite frustrated when um, you know commentary around the Olympics can focus on the negatives and like oh we didn't win all the medals that we said we're going to win and um, these people 
underperformed and with very little understanding of quite how hard it is to go to an Olympic Games, compete against the absolute best in the world when every other country in the world is also trying to win those events um, and still conduct yourself in a way that um, is commensurate with being an Australian Olympian. And I think our team had it just an exceptional culture. Um, they supported each other so well and you really couldn't have asked for anything more. And so to be able to celebrate that together was, was really nice. That's something that we talked a lot about on, on the show during the Games was this pressure aspect because there's always that announcement, I guess, pre-Games isn't there that we're expected to win, you know, 12, 15 gold medals. We come home with seven. And as you said, there's some people in the media and just out there feel that's disappointing. I mean, going back to sort of what you mentioned about Barcelona, I mean, I grew up in that period too when Australia would win seven, nine gold medals. That was a great thing. You know, I mean, we've got, what, 15 in Sydney, you know, 16 and then more in Athens. And it kind of seemed like we were overachieving and now we're kind of back, I guess, to say what was standard. I mean, it must be, as you were just saying, from that perspective, to come home to all these welcome home parades and to celebrate our achievements, to just have that aspect of people who are saying, well, seven, that's disappointing. I mean, that that really shouldn't be the case. We should, as you said, celebrate the performance of the Olympic team, no matter what we come home with, whether it's seven, 70 or, or none. Yeah, I think it is a minority. I, I did realise that the not the welcome home parades that, you know, the vast majority of Australia were exceptionally proud and and were absolutely, um, you know, wonderfully supportive. Um, I think the, you know, the naysayers who are are saying not good enough, I mean, in the lead-up to the Sydney Games, um, there was a real investment in sport, both from um, the government and from the corporate sector. Um, That really trickled off after the Sydney Games. Um, I think Athens still had the momentum of the Sydney Games, and it still had... a lot of athletes who had been blooded with great experience in Sydney um, still performing well. Um, but since then, you know, funding has, has from, the, from the government has really um, stagnated and, um, you know, for a number of reasons in real terms, it's actually gone down a lot. And at the same time, other countries are investing a lot more um, in sport. Um, and the result of that is that, um, you know, a lot of the time, Amateur athletes from Australia are competing against professional athletes from overseas, and mm. it, it's a lot harder. Um, you know, Australia were definitely a first mover in um, what the Australian Institute of Sport was, and um, the amount of investment going into Sydney. And I think it's unrealistic to think that we're going to be able to achieve those numbers without extra investment in sport, whether that is from the government or if it is from the private sector. You mentioned the Welcome Home Parades. Uh, I was actually at the one here in Hobart. I mean, you've obviously got a great connection to Tasmania, given that Scott is Tasmanian. You're married here in in Hobart, I believe, as well. But I saw the reaction that you got from the fans at the Welcome Home Parade here in Tasmania. There was big banners and it's almost like a fan club for you here. I mean, what was that like, sort of coming down here to see that experience when, you know, out of all the Welcome Home Parades, I guess? Oh, it was so cool. I, I definitely uh, penciled Hobart in as one that I would not miss for the world. Um, we did get married there. I spent a lot of time um, down in Hobart and Tassie with with Scott and his family. And um, I think, you know, Hobart has, and or Tasmania has, 
a really exceptional, um, in particular, rowing community. Um, you know, the, the term punch above your weight is used a lot, but in terms of rowing, it couldn't be more true for Tasmania and, you know, the number of medal-winning Olympians that have, have come from what is essentially a very small state is quite exceptional. Um, and, you know, just the the atmosphere at the the Tassie Welcome Home Parade is really special. We always get given um, little gifts, which you don't get anywhere else. So ah, right. Okay. <laughs> no, it was really fun. Wow. Um, wow. What, a, what, what do you get? Do you the, just get like little uh, Tasmanian food? I mean, what sort of gifts do we do Tasmania give you? Yeah, well, we got a we got a Tassie Devil oh, course, um, in 2012, um, and this time round we got these beautiful lavender heat packs and some, you know, some fresh honey and just, you know, some delicious Cadbury chocolate. Nice, nice. <laughs> no of course, here. yes. Well, that, there you go. That's what you'd expect. From uh, from Tasmania, so uh, we, we we try to. Inter- I mean, the, the interesting thing about the Welcome Home Parade last year, I found, was that it was the first time that we'd had. I'm not sure if it was just gold medalists or multiple gold medalists actually come because I mean it's sort of rare that some of the, the the gold medalists will come to to the Tasmania one. But I mean, we obviously had yourself, we had Chloe Esposito there, we had Catherine Skinner, had uh, the, Campbell. the Campbells were there. Exactly. I mean, we had pretty much the majority of the gold medalists came down to Hobart, so we were. I think chuffed that that had happened because it had been a while since we'd had that many gold medalists. I think maybe since Sydney, I remember, we had a, a large string of them. But, yeah, it was great. Well, we definitely talked up how good the Hobart Welcome Home Parade was, so there was that component of it. But the other component was, um, you know, I was talking about the team culture at the Olympics, but part of that was that we'd all, all become great friends. Um, and so no one wanted to miss out. Um, <laughs> we all wanted to, you know, share that. As, as much as possible and it, it is one of the nice things about the Olympics that you can get to know and become friends with people from across a range of different sports and experiences. Well we, we slowly took a bit of credit on Off the Podium for Chloe winning the gold in the modern pentathlon because on day one we spoke up how amazing modern pentathlon was and we were counting down the days till it started and when she won gold we were like well hello we put, brought this out to the open for Australia you're welcome so uh, I just I just hope that if Chloe ever listens to this that she knows that. I, I, I forced myself to get a selfie with her on that Welcome Home Parade. So that was my uh, my achievement unlocked on that day, basically. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'll send a link to Chloe and, Good. and she can know that she's got a fan club down here. Yes, oh, she does. Trust me, she does. Uh, you mentioned at the top of the interview, I mean, outside of your sporting career, uh, you know, you, you're active in your, your legal pursuits, you've had columns in the age, you've won awards I mentioned before, uh, advocate for women's sport as well out there, very outspoken about this. I mean, you've got so many passions with this, Kim, and now, with outside of your rowing, is this kind of where you're transferring that passion into what you're doing? I mean, is this what your career now is in, in the in the legal industry? I mean, what are, what are you up to now? I guess that's my long winded way of asking that. Yeah, I've actually um, I've taken a job at Ernst and Young in um, in their advisory wing, which is a bit of a change for me, being you know a lawyer by trade. Um, but one of the nice things is that I'm getting a lot more exposure to you know how government departments work, how big business works, um, to actually expand. Um, my knowledge beyond sport you know absolutely one day I'd love to um, you know get back in there and make a real difference but I felt that um, you know perhaps I didn't have the broader perspective um, to be able to um, from the outside look in um, and just felt that 
I wanted to improve the skills that I had um, to be able to contribute in a more meaningful way to um, to the you know the future of sport in this country. So um, I'm working in that capacity and actually really loving it. That's good. So does that mean now that that rowing you you retired from rowing? That's it. No more defending the title come 2020. <sighs> I haven't actually retired, but um, right. you know, it was funny because after after the race. Um, I, you know, if you had have asked me then, I would have said, look, I'm done. I, I just felt satisfied and, um, you know, really looking forward to just spending some time at home. And, um, and then I came back and I did a couple of races over in the US and I hadn't trained at all and I still went really fast. And I was like, oh, gee, maybe I don't need to do the training. I can just, you know, go and race and race <laughs> fast. You know, the reality of that is absolutely ridiculous. That's not how things work. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm actually really enjoying work. Um, I think I will retire. Um, I've just seen so many athletes retire and then come back that I've sort of said, you know, I'll give it a couple of years to, to make sure that that this is the right call for me. You know, if you ask me now, I'm 99% certain that, <laughs> that I will move on. Um, there's so many other things out there. It's so nice to be able to have more time to to spend at home, to spend with my husband, to be there for friends and family and to give back to sport in another way. And plus you've got the full set of uh, the Olympic medals anyway. You've got a gold, a silver and a bronze. So I guess you've, you've collected them all, essentially, Kim. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. One way probably only it. get worse. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> you don't get something for fourth, apparently. So, you know, you, you've got the, the full collection. So, Kim, it's it's been a lot of fun. Uh, absolute pleasure to have you here on the show to talk about this. I mean, best of luck with, with everything with your career and uh, if that 1% chance happens that you're in Tokyo in uh, three years' time to defend the title, we, uh, we wish you all the best of luck with that. But appreciate your time and it's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me. Fantastic to chat with Kim there and very insightful uh, to hear throughout uh, that chat everything to do with her career and uh, obviously uh, we, we are hopeful that perhaps she can continue on, come back for Tokyo in 2020 and uh, we appreciate Kim giving her time for us here on Off the Podium and we've got plenty more to come. We've got more interviews to come your way. Australian, Canadian, you name it, we've got them. Gold medalists, no medalists, whatever. They're, they're out there and they're ready to chat to us so we're very Happy to bring these to you, and we hope you enjoy. Also, um, again, at some point, be coming all together. Jared, myself, and Colin talk about 2018. The Winter Olympics are a year away. Get excited, and uh, we're going to come up with some filler, basically, between now and uh, February 2018. So uh, I'm sure we can manage that. But, uh, yes, very, very exciting, and we are glad that you are back listening to us. Off the Podium on Facebook is where you can find us, and remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. Easiest way to get these direct to your devices. Leave us a feedback, rating, whatever you want to do. And if uh, you don't use iTunes, you can search for Off the Podium on your relevant podcast server. But we appreciate your time on the show today. Stay tuned for more interviews, and thank you for listening to us here on Off the Podium. Off the Podium.